1: I'm your host, Vincent Walden, coming to you on the Tom Fox Compliance Podcast Network. Today, I'm on the pond with Andrew Levine, partner with a law firm of Deva Boys in Plimpton, focused on white collar, regulatory defense, and internal investigations. Welcome, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Vince. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Glad you could be on the show. So before we get started, you know, as in typical Walden Pond format, we'll start with a quote from Thoreau. And I chose this one most appropriate given our discussion today on meeting regulators' expectations and what we see in the future. He wrote 150 years ago, and this is, I'm taking this from civil disobedience if we were left solely to the wordy wit of legislators in Congress for our guidance, uncorrected by the seasonable experience and the effectual complaints of the people, America would not long retain her ranks among the nations. <laughs> So I bring that quote up because I think about the DOJ's guidance that came out last June. And I kind of disagree with the quote, because in this context, I really think the DOJ did try to go beyond the legislators and incorporate the, quote unquote, seasonable experience of the people in writing that guidance. What are your thoughts?
0: I think that the guidance overall, Vince, is a positive step forward in terms of understanding how prosecutors think about compliance programs when they make charging decisions, but also to give real actionable advice in terms of a framework for analyzing a compliance program. And as we've talked about before, really the the DOJ has organized the advice around three critical questions. Is the program well designed? Is it adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? And does it work in practice? And then within each of those areas, there are a number of considerations. And thinking through those considerations is an excellent way to go about evaluating a compliance program. Yeah, it was practical. And that was what was, I think, why it was so popular.
1: That's why we're talking about it so much. So,
0: that's Although, a great inside, segue. I would just add, as practical as it is, it's also the case that DOJ continues to raise the bar mm. for what it yeah. expects from an effective compliance program. And for many companies, in certain respects, that will be difficult. So if we're, we're on the pond, we don't want to drown.
1: Yeah. And,
0: <laughs> and there, there are certain things, especially during a pandemic, With all of the attendant challenges and financial difficulties and operational obstacles of operating today, it is important to balance the guidance and the aspiration with reality. Yeah. Especially when it comes to something like making effective use of data in a compliance program, which we're going to speak about today, and can be very intimidating and can be viewed as cost prohibitive even though it needn't be.
1: Wow. That's one of the better segues into the start of our show, Andrew. I think that's spot on. And so with that, let's get in. I'd like to kind of first talk about our audience usually likes to get a little bit of background of the people I interview. So first and foremost, can you give us a bit of background about how you got to be a partner at Boys?
0: I guess it's like the, the old Carnegie Hall joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Yeah, yeah. So in a former life, after college, I was a management consultant. I, I worked at McKinsey & Company based in New York, advising companies and nonprofits on a host of matters, including strategy, operations, and organization. Then went back to law school clerked for a couple of years for two federal judges, one a district court judge, one an appellate judge, both based in New York, and then had what really was an opportunity of a lifetime for me to go and work with Paul Volcker on the independent investigation into the UN oil for food program out of Iraq, which was a $100 billion program that was riddled by fraud and corruption and I worked with a team yeah. of 70 lawyers, investigators and forensic accountants following the money and identifying a variety of issues that were disclosed in the in the course of our reports of which I was one of the principal drafters and editors and about 15 years ago after that experience I joined Debvoise and the rest is history part of our white collar and regulatory defense group as a litigation partner I worked extensively on internal investigations, defending companies and individuals in enforcement matters, crisis management, compliance due diligence, and uh, an assortment of proactive compliance advising, including conducting risk assessments and enhancing compliance programs, both of which I know we will discuss today.
1: Yeah, that's great. We'll save that oil for food program as a separate show because I, there's so many cool questions and stories. I'm sure you could tell from that, but uh, sure. yeah, <laughs> we'll save that. Well, you know, you and I have collaborated in the past, really linking corporate compliance and the DOJ's expectations to the use of technology in meeting the regulator's expectation. Can you maybe describe your approach and how you align technology considerations with the DOJ's guidance?
0: Absolutely. And at a high level, Vince, what I would say is the guidance reflects the increasingly sophisticated ways in which companies, in fact, are leveraging data in designing, implementing, and operationalizing their compliance programs. Mm -hmm. And we've seen in recent enforcement resolutions as well DOJ identifying compliance analytics or data analytics as being a positive enhancement to compliance programs. And now, when folks are stuck at home, what could be a better time than to think about how to use data, especially as data tends to work remotely more effectively than many of the other traditional tools used for compliance assessment purposes? I mentioned a little bit ago that the the DOJ guidance was organized around three fundamental questions. And perhaps it would be useful for the audience to consider how data fits into those three questions. So with respect to the first question, is the program well designed? The question that DOJ is asking with respect to the updates and revisions to a program is, is the periodic review limited to a snapshot in time, or is it based on continuous access to operational data and information across functions? So the magic phrasing there is continuous access to operational data and information. The second question, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? The questions include, Does compliance and control personnel, do they have sufficient direct or indirect access to relevant sources of data to allow for timely and effective monitoring and or testing of policies, controls, and transactions? And then relatedly, if there are impediments that do exist, what's the company doing to address those impediments? So again, The magic phrasing there is sufficient direct or indirect access to relevant sources of data. That's huge. And we can talk (laughs) more about what that means as well. Right. And then last, but arguably most important, does it actually work? Because if it's well-designed, and even if it is adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work.
1: And show me, yeah, show me how it works, right? Demonstrate it.
0: Exactly, what enables you to sleep well at night as a chief compliance officer or an other in-house compliance or legal professional? It's the continuous improvement, testing and review. And with respect to data there, the questions posed by DOJ are more generally, what testing of controls, collection and analysis of compliance data, and interviews of employees and third parties does the company undertake? And how are the results reported and action items tracked? So again, there, Vince, the magic phrasing really is about the testing of controls and the collection and analysis of compliance data. So clearly, DOJ is going all in on compliance data, but you and I know extremely well that companies generally are in all sorts of various places in terms of their own compliance journeys, and that is especially true when it comes to data. There are a number of companies out there that are far ahead of the pack. There are some that are doing a bit of experimentation and analysis, and there is then a significant group of companies that are still trying to figure out how to make this worthwhile approach to compliance actually work for their company.
1: Yeah. And add value to the business. It's a great summary, aligning it to the guidance. And those three points that that guidance sets forth lines well with the data. And you think about as we go into 2021 this year, I'd love to get your thoughts and predictions, especially in the context of hopefully recovering from the pandemic, in the context of a new U.S. and the Biden administration. Among other factors, what are some of the key risks or compliance initiatives you'll see companies focused on in 2021?
0: That's a great question, Vince. And let me offer a few thoughts. First, be purposeful when it comes to thinking about a compliance program. So much has changed both about risk profiles and what's manageable and doable from a compliance perspective. And of course, COVID 19 itself is both a cause and a potential obstacle when it comes to corruption and investigating such allegations. So don't just assume that business as usual will work. Step back and be thoughtful, both in assessing risks and adjusting how the program works, including as you look forward into 2021. The second point is expect DOJ and the SEC to continue to focus on anti corruption enforcement, which tends to be a bipartisan sport. <laughs> Many wrongly assumed that FCPA enforcement would look materially different under a Trump administration. In fact, we've seen very significant and substantial resolutions and enforcement in recent years. And there's every reason to think that will continue vigorously with the next administration. More broadly, of course, when it comes to anti-corruption laws, we've seen the globalization of enforcement and with the attendant risk of multiple authorities investigating the same conduct and the difficulty sometimes of mitigating the risk of piling on, something that DOJ has recognized as well. Right. Yeah. The third well, point I would make, Vincent, this is my last one here, oh, okay, is, sure. is that prosecutors expectations regarding what is an effective compliance program continue to rise. And in fact, they only continue to rise. So now is a good chance to think about enhancement opportunities. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Develop a reasonable plan. Think about resourcing for implementation. Think about a timetable that works and then execute and understand that the compliance journey is a never ending one that continuous improvement and ongoing evaluation and enhancements are all part of the objective here and compliance programs that work well are ones that are always improving
1: that's awesome <laughs> great answer and let's reflect on some of your own experiences what are some of your favorite examples of where you've helped clients integrate technology and analytics into their compliance program And what were some of the successes around it?
0: Sure, I mean we could probably we can probably talk for hours on this topic, Vince. And I know firsthand about the many successes you've had in this area. And I think more generally that partnering with experts like you, who understand how to leverage technology to get at the data that matters, it's a joy and it's hugely helpful to clients. You know, perhaps one example, and of course, data is the lifeblood of investigations and compliance. But one area where there may be less discussion sometimes is compliance due diligence. And that's because there are many deals where even with reasonable due diligence, it's not possible to get at the underlying compliance data using technological tools. But where that is an option, it can be All the difference. And I'll give you the example of doing due diligence where one is interviewing the in-house counsel or maybe the head of sales or the CFO and asks a simple question like, does the company ever wine and dine government officials? Right. And there's a very definitive answer. Never. It's against our policy we're very frugal we would never do this and absolutely not we don't even we don't even take our customers out and that may be an honest answer according to the knowledge of the person who's being interviewed but at the same time it may be that if we get the GL and we look at the right account we're going to see a yeah. host of meals and entertaining and we can then have a real fact-based conversation about tell me about this meal, or why did you go have this drink with this government official while the company was under investigation, or exactly what hospitality did you provide the regulators who were on site for the day doing an inspection? And again, all of these things may be totally fine and compliant with the applicable anti-corruption laws. But the reality is, and we see this in investigations too all the time, all too easily there can be a disconnect between the data or reality and what the people being interviewed actually know. Yeah. sometimes it's only by getting that data that the team is in a position to have a truly informed and fulsome conversation. And where that option is available, it can be very helpful. Again, recognizing that in the M&A context, it often won't be, but where it can be, it's certainly an option worth considering.
1: No, no doubt. Well, and again, I think about on that theme, you know, we got about one more minute or so, and I, got one, I want to get one more question in, and, and that's like, what advice? What advice do you have to the audience, the, the legal and compliance professionals listening who maybe haven't started on their analytics journey but want to do so in the new
0: year? How do they get started? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that question, Vince, and I will give you my quick take. It starts fundamentally with an assessment of what the key compliance risks are, because one approach for all companies just does not work here. The next step, which you and I have done together before, I think quite effectively, is to figure out what is the available data and then to map the identified risks to the data and to consider how to leverage that data after aggregating and harmonizing it to better monitor and mitigate the identified risks. And again, there's no one right way to do this, but I would highly advise that companies consider a pilot. Pick one or two risk areas. Maybe it's payments to third parties, employee reimbursements, customer sales, including discounts, or other other potential areas of risk, figure out how to bring the data together, and then a way to analyze and visualize the data in a real ongoing way to understand when risks change and when there are red flags that warrant follow-up. But again, I would underscore, as we've said throughout, there are practical ways to do this that are commercial and reasonable, and the key is to smartly begin in a digestible fashion with an understanding of what the risks are, how they map to the data, and then again, pick a pilot, a risk or two, consider how that works, evaluate, extrapolate, experiment more broadly, and of course, find champions across the business because I know our experience together has been, once you start a project like this, it often becomes quickly appealing to people far beyond the compliance and legal departments and can be a true management tool that helps to run a business more profitably.
1: Yeah, it's so much more fun when, you, when you're helping multiple business departments, not just one through these analytics. Well, and Andrew, thank you very much for being on the show. We're just about, we're out of time now, but we definitely got to have you back and uh, great insights and thought for the uh,
0: listening audience. I appreciate you being on the show. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with and I appreciate the invitation, Vince, and keep up all the good work. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week out on The Pond. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Walden Pond Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.